you got to understand something here. All this kind of sacrificial logic is done and over with. Christ has been sacrificed for us. But who did the sacrifice? That's the question. Did the Father sacrifice the Son? No. Did the devil sacrifice the Son? No. Did we sacrifice the Son? Yes. And it's that it's that small uh, anthropocentric shift that changes everything in atonement theory. We continue our look at the cross today on In the Shadow of the Cross. to In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Howdy. And Michael Harden. Greetings. And last week, we had a very intriguing conversation about the cross, and we decided that one podcast does not do that topic justice. Really, two, three, or four, or five really don't do it justice either, but we're going to do the best we can with two. We'll see if it expands into a third. Who knows? Uh, but we're going to pick it up this week, and... Uh, the, the first thing that came to mind was there's a lot of, as, as Michael was sharing a non-sacrificial view of the cross, I know that for people listening, there's verses that are automatically firing off in people's minds uh, going, well, what about this verse? What about that verse? How, how does this work with a non-sacrificial view of the Father? And for example, um, one that immediately popped into mind is, what about the scripture about without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin? Beautiful. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we happen to find that particular text. Okay. So in order to appreciate what a non-sacrificial reading looks like, we have to uh, just quick remember the epistle to the Hebrews has surveyed the Old Covenant, found it lacking in light of the New Covenant. He's found the Old Priesthood lacking in light of the New Priesthood, the Old Tabernacle in light of the New Jesus is the new temple, the body is the new temple, and he's got a critique of sacrifice going on here. But in chapter 9, Lauren, you just quoted a text, and, and if, you, if, if you don't mind me, I'm going to just read that text. It says, without, I'm sorry, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's your verse, right? Yeah. Okay. So, under the law, almost everything is cleansed with blood, with shedding blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, you notice chapter 10 starts off with the law as a shadow of good things to come, uh, but it's impossible, verse 4. Notice it's, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. That's saying something very radically opposite to, indeed, under the law, everything is cleansed with blood and there's no forgiveness of sin without blood. And yet here in verse 4, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he wants us to imagine this scene between the Father and the Son in the heavens before Jesus comes down and they're watching football maybe and having you know their, their coffee or tea or their beer and pizza or whatever. And Jesus turns to the Father and says, Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have no pleasure in. He quotes Psalm 40. That's a quotation from Psalm 40, on the lips of the pre-incarnate Christ. Then he said, Lord, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book. And then in verse 8, the only time in the New Testament an author is going to tell you why they uh, have quoted a text, and they're going to exegete it, he said, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings, there's a parenthesis. These are offered according to the law. Same phrase we had back in verse 21. According to the law. According to the law, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But the Father doesn't require sacrifice, and the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin in the first place. Why? Because the Father is non-sacrificial. Wow. So you have to pay attention to those opening words under the law yeah mm -hmm. and the writer says that's the problem here 
Now, I could see a lot of people would get hung up on that because wasn't the law given by God? Okay. Now you're talking about a theory of Scripture. And the problem here in Protestantism is that all theories of Scripture have a doctrine of inspiration. That is, they have God as the ultimate author, somehow, some way. And so if you take that position, um, you're going to end up stuck. If you say, you know, God wrote the Bible, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, you're going to end up stuck in Christendom. Christendom begins, Protestantism especially, Protestant Christendom, I should say, Protestant Christendom begins, first of all, by having to define the book. Christianity begins by saying the person of Jesus has defined both the Father and us. So where we spend all of our time trying to define a book and how God superintended 66 books in our canon and how he wrote every chapter, every verse, every line, and we got our apologetics and we got our harmonies and we got all this stuff to try to make it fit together, what's really going on in Scripture gets missed. And what gets missed is that Jesus has come to show us who the Father is, not who God is, not what a God concept is, but who the Father is. Wow. So so what you're saying is basically we've been trained to start at the wrong starting point. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We've been, we've been told, trust in God. How do we trust in God? By trusting the Bible. How can we trust the Bible? Because God wrote the Bible, therefore we can trust in God. And then we spend all of our time doing Bible apologetics. And instead of allowing the Bible to speak and allow God to speak through it to us. Wow. So so we really have to go back to the place of letting Jesus be, as Scripture says, that he's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He has to be the place we start. It's almost like, like you said, the God concepts. It's like we have to throw out... And for us, it's hard because of having been trained so long in these wrong ways of thinking. We have to throw out all those old God concepts and start with just Jesus. Well, it's not just Jesus. It's just Jesus crucified. Okay. In other words, if we say, well, we're gonna, we have a Jesus-centered Christianity, that doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. I know a lot of people have a Jesus-centered Christianity, and their Jesus is warped as stuff, right? Yeah. No, it's Christ crucified. It's Jesus. That's where we start. The, the, the gospel to the Gentiles will always begin with the crucified Messiah. Always. It has to. That really clarifies even how Paul said, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. Right. Um, can you guys expand on that? Jim? Well, we, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that the crucified Lord is the result of man's hatred mm -hmm. of Jesus. Actually, I, I I think it goes further than that even. I think it, it, it goes into man's hatred of Jesus revealing the Father. Right. Oh, wow. When you take God consciousness away and present a Father, present a relationship, I don't want that. Now, 2,000 years later, I say, well, of course I want a relationship with the Lord, with the Father, with Jesus, with, you know. And what Michael's saying is what I really want is I really want something that looks biblical, whatever, whatever that might be. But when Jesus came, he, 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 he said, I, I, I want to do something. I want to reveal to you who my Father is and your Father Mm -hmm. They're one and the same, okay? Mm -hmm. And I want to reveal who he is. And and the more he revealed the Father, the more people were angry. Mm -hmm. Until ultimately, you know, we have the cross. So in, in the starting point of, of Jesus and the cross, or the crucified Lord, however uh, you choose to say it, you're starting with... You know, there's a scripture that says this. It says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good, no, not one. You know, and we like to think that, well, yeah, well, you know, and and I know I'm going to get myself in trouble here because one of these days we're going to talk about being the righteousness of God. But for today, I like to think I'm righteous, but I like to think I'm righteous in my own righteousness. 
you know. I'm just a good person. You know, it goes on to say no one sought God. No one sought after the Lord. And we talked about this last week. Had we have been there, we would have been one yelling, crucify him. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have to start. We have to start with the place that I'm guilty of having nailed Christ to the cross. Mm -hmm. And while I'm swinging the hammer, so to speak, he's saying, Lord, forgive Jim. He doesn't know what he's doing. Wow. And, and that's where the starting point is. The starting point's at forgiveness. Mm -hmm. The starting point's at God, we talked about this last week, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the starting point. It's a, it's a point of relationship. It's a point of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. It's not a point of fire escape. It's not a point of transference. So all of the punishment that we should have got, uh, God said, okay, Jesus, uh, I'll let you go ahead and step in their place. And, and for a few thousand years, that'll appease my wrath. But <laughs> eventually, I'm going to get get even with those suckers. That's right. I love how you were saying that the uh, that we were, what really upset the people was him revealing the Father. And mm -hmm. when you said that, it was just like, bam. There it is, because the whole thing is, if, if you have Jesus separate from the Father, as we tend to do in modern-day Christianity, it's okay. You know, yeah, Jesus mm -hmm. is a nice guy. Jesus is a good guy. Mm -hmm. Jesus Jesus mm -hmm. is loving and kind and turns the other cheek and all that stuff. But wait till the Father comes. You know, wait till Daddy comes home, you know, yeah, and, right. and you're you're going to get it. But, but what you are saying, that's offensive to us, because it's like, well, wait a minute. Jesus is exactly like the Father, and the Father is exactly like the Son. So the Father turns the other cheek. The Father keeps no record of wrongs. The Father is a peacemaker. The Father, it, it, it's like, wait a minute, you know, and, and, but just like Michael shared earlier, the God concepts, my God concept is I have a God of wrath who's been storing it up long. It keeps building and building and building, and then he's going to get you all. And all of a sudden it's like, I see, see, I'm a good Christian, so I don't take revenge on you. But what I do is I pass it over to the father and the father's going to get you. But what you just did, Jim, is you just said, but the Father's not doing that either. He's not stacking up that anger and vengeance and all that either. Now I'm mad because you just ripped down my my vengeance there. And also, if I'm if my um, uh, righteousness is rooted in my goodness and all the good things I'm doing and I'm denying myself from doing things that I really want to be doing because I'm that kid at the candy store window. I used to see this as a youth pastor all the time with the pastor's kids, you know. They're like the kid at the candy store window. I wanted the candy store. I wanted the candy store. And I'd like tell the parents, you know, when when that window's gone, they're they're in the store, you know. It's like, mm -hmm. you, you, and, and it's like, it, that's so many Christians. It's like, I, I really want to be doing this. I really want to be doing this, but but I'm not doing it. But they're, they're mad at other people because they're getting to do what they don't want to what they can't do. And so it's all God's going to get you. But all of a sudden, if God's not going to get them, then it's like, well, why have I been doing all this? Why have I been holding off on all this for? And now I'm angry because I feel like I've been, I've been disciplining myself and doing all these things to, to not do those things. And, and now all of a sudden, if, if your view is fire insurance, all of a sudden, then what was the point? I, I think that's a, a, a very valid point. And I don't remember if, uh, you remember any of these teachings back in old, old Town. But I used to get called kind of on the carpet because I'd be teaching on, um, for lack of a better term, on grace. Mm -hmm. And I'd be called in and said, you know, if you if you keep teaching this, you know, it's it's okay to hit on it once or twice a year, you know, because you balance it out with, you know, the rest of the teaching and whatever. But if you just keep harping on this, people are going to go out and do what they want to do. And, and I said, and therein is the, is the issue. Yeah. They're going to go do what they want to do. Scripture tells us that no one is tempted by God. 
but they're tempted when they're drawn away by their own desire, the thing they want to do. That's where temptation comes from. And if we teach grace the right way, grace is the ability to say no to sin, for instance. Okay? It's the only way that we ever can get to the place. Um, and, and I don't want to do a whole teaching on grace tonight. But we, we need to do that another time and really treat it. Um, but if a person wants to do something, especially under hammering them with the law, they're going to come up with a ridiculous thing better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. <laughs> so they're going to go out and do it and then come back and they're going to be all, you know, broken and up at the altar and crying and saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. And, you know, and, I, and, and I'll never do it again. And they know they're going to do it again. I mean, they know they are. The cross steps in and gives us the power to two things. One, we redefine sin, and 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 we'll again we'll deal with that on a later podcast. We under, come to an understanding of what grace is, and then we come to an understanding of in the relationship with the Lord, with the crucified Lord, in that relationship, we stand free from all condemnation. We stand in his righteousness. We stand in his acceptance, in his love. We stand in a totally united, blessed, honored, accepted relationship with the Father. That's why we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And if we don't come from that place, we're never going to get victory over the vices that we think, you know, and we're always going to be afraid of uh, eternal retribution. We're always going to be looking over our shoulder. You know, we get a flat tire on the way to work and we say, I knew it. I knew God was going to get back at me. You know, and we have these squirrely doctrines, and and, and they come uh, from, first of all, not understanding the cross. And Jim, I, I love that. And and I have to say, it's it's funny you, you brought up that you were called on the carpet for, for teaching too much grace or whatever, because I still have to this day from that time period, a tape, a message you gave on Romans 6. Um, Is it right? I, I yeah. still have that because it, it was so filled with... It, it, it edified me so much on uh, because I was just uh, again I was coming out of that place of hard condemnation where um, you're you uh, talking about um, you know your heart being in the place of like well that's the road I don't want to go down even though you go down that road and that was so freeing for me um, but I but I've seen that that um, it, it's like I, I heard this analogy that that I love because I hear people this kind of goes back to our deconstruction conversation we had a few weeks ago but but someone was talking about well you know if you if you just cut people loose and they're just going to go do what they want to do and I thought well what is it they want to do why why do we assume that that what they want to go do is quote unquote bad stuff you know what I want to do is I want to help people get free. You know, that, that's why we're doing this podcast, you know. Um, I, I'm sure all of us could share things that we would want to do. And it's kind of that thing. I heard this analogy. Uh, Darren Hufford gave this analogy. He talked about country dog and city dog. And he said, uh, you, you, you have city dog um, and he's in the fence backyard and you open that gate and that dog's gone. And he goes, but country dog, country dog's curled up on the porch and there's no fences there. And I'm like, that's, I think, the place that actually knowing the cross and knowing the love of the Father, there's no fences. But you're, you're country dog. You're on the porch. You, you want to be with the Father. You want to be at home. That's a, a real good analogy. I have a, another verse for, uh, I'm going to let Michael handle this one here. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've heard this in argument. It's Isaiah 53.10. And... I'm going to quote it from the, or read it rather, from the New International Version. It says, 
It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. I think this scripture probably more than any other is is the one that I hear when people want to uh, proof text the um, God poured out his wrath, God, you know, God crushed Jesus, uh, you know, he, he was the perfect sacrifice for sin, so on and so forth. It seems just at a, uh, a superficial reading of, of that uh, scripture that you can see all of it in there, that it, it pleased the Lord to make him suffer. Okay. Couple of things here. So we have a text. Comes out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. It's one of four servant songs. As from Second Isaiah, chapters 40 through through 55. Okay, so you have this text about this servant. And this servant is going to undergo, undergo a, a very profound experience of suffering. And then you get to verse 10. And the Hebrew text, if you translate it from the Hebrew, is the Lord delighted to crush him, making him sick. That's the Hebrew text. Now, the Hebrew text, while it was used in Jesus' day, was not the dominant text. That would have been the Targums or the Septuagint. Now, when the Septuagint translators come along, and they have no problem doing this, you have to understand this, they're Jews and they have no problem doing this, they come along and they translate verse 10 as, and the Lord desires to purify him of the plague. And a plague now, if you're a mimetic theorist, you're thinking of the mimetic mob, the contagion of the mob, the violence of the mob. The Lord desired to purify him of the plague. Now, all I want to, and the, and the Targum does a, a few other interesting things here. What I'm pointing out is that the Bible is a collection of an interpretation of traditions. These traditions are constantly being reinterpreted. That's what Scripture is. You have the, the Samuel uh, King's books rewritten in Chronicles. You have Colossians used in Ephesians. Second Peter uses Jude. Uh, Luke and Matthew use Mark. Well, I mean, the, the biblical writers are using these traditions, and they're rewriting them at the same time as they go through and translate and work with them. So number one, unless you're going to try and argue some weird theory of inspiration about the Hebrew text rather than the Septuagint, and remember, because the New Testament is written in Greek for the entire Orthodox Church, it's the Septuagint that's inspired. And in the early church, it was the Septuagint that was inspired because there are only four church fathers that could read Hebrew in the first 400 years. So it was the Septuagint that was inspired. Well, <clears throat> that eliminates that right there. Bang, it's done. Now now what we've done is we've said the Jews themselves interpreted their tradition from a sacrificial to a more non-sacrificial direction. That's already happening within Judaism. There's an awareness that there's a problem when we try to put the blame on God. Wow. So here, here's another one. Then, right in line with that, is what about all the all the passages and, and sermons we've heard about Jesus being the Passover Lamb? Oh, wonderful! <clears throat> so now you've opened up a can of worms. <laughs> Once again, I'm so, good at that. <laughs> well, here, here's the beauty of that. So, in in order to deal with that, we have to go to the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John is the is the one uh, gospel that, that's actually going to be making kind of a case like this. So uh, first we have to look in John chapter 1. So I've got to go to John 1 here. Let me get my Greek text out. And um, verse 29 of chapter 1, after the prologue. And the next day John sees Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lambs aren't used to take away sins. <laughs> right? Lambs can be used for other reasons, but there's a primary reason lambs are used, and that's associated with Passover. Well, okay, so let's go to Passover in the Gospel of John. La, 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 la. We make our ways to chapter 18 and 19. We notice that, first of all, um, in chapter 13, uh, it doesn't say there's a Passover meal. It just says there's a dinner. 
just a regular hmm. dinner. Dape known, just a dinner. It's not a Passover meal. There's no lamb mentioned, none of that. And um, then in uh, John 18, after Jesus has been arrested, so you have the dinner, the arrest. Um, in John 18, it says, um, uh, they brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's residence. Now it was early morning. They did not go into the governor's residence, so they could not be ceremonially defiled, but could eat the Passover meal. Oh, it's the morning of the, the Passover meal, sundown, sundown that night, starts Passover. It's the day before. Passover lambs are due to be slaughtered that day in the temple. Everybody brings their lambs. It's a regular meat market, and they're just, you know. And the Gospel of John says the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, is being slaughtered outside of the city while you're all bringing your Passover lambs to the temple. So he has Jesus' death occur before the Passover. But Jesus' death is like the Passover. How? What does, what does the original Passover do? It keeps death away. And Jesus' death keeps death away. It removes the sting of death, as Paul would put it. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, yeah. Now, what I'm saying here, I'm, I'm also trying to introduce a conundrum for any of our real conservative readers, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus has a Passover meal. It's very clearly a Passover meal. Even though there's no mention of lamb, there's mention of different cups. And it's that that leads scholars to think we're dealing here with a Passover meal, unless they just like to drink. Um, but um, the tradition, however you want to tra tra shape it, the tradition, Matt Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus do a Last Supper. A, that's a Passover meal. John has Jesus dying at the same time the lambs are being slaughtered. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 makes this rather amazing move. And he says, Christ is the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. And he's doing this in a context of a community that's starting to tear itself apart by trying to accuse people in the community of problems. And he says, you got to understand something here. All this kind of sacrificial logic is done and over with. Christ has been sacrificed for us. But who did the sacrifice? That's the question. Did the father sacrifice the son? No. Did the devil sacrifice the son? No. Did we sacrifice the son? Yes. And it's that it's that small um, anthropocentric shift that changes everything in atonement theory. Now, atonement is no longer a transaction between the son and the father. Now, the atonement is no longer a transaction between the father and the devil. Now, the atonement is our transaction with God. <clears throat> and this is how... We can make a wrong decision about Jesus. He's innocent. We declare him guilty. Okay? The one who knew no sin was determined to be sin. By who? By us. <laughs> Therefore, or in order that we might be found the righteousness of God, which we aren't, in him. In other words, if we can make a wrong proclamation about Jesus and declare the innocent guilty god can turn around and make that same proclamation and declare the guilty innocent oh wow that's a cool flip <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> hadn't seen that way that's really cool <laughs> that's really cool and uh just uh, uh let's see uh, another another one um what about and this is this is a word that i use every day in my life not um what about Jesus being the perpetuation of our sins? Perpetuation. Perpetuation. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, now you're in Romans 3, 23 to 26. You'd think I'd done this work before, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so, so we have this text. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified or rectified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This is always Paul's logic. God doesn't hold sin against us in any way, shape, or form, right? Now, where's propitiation? 
Well, it's in it's in. Where do you find propitiation, Lauren, in in that text? Because that's that's the text where, where, it is. It's in verse twenty five. God publicly displayed him in his death. King James reads, God made him a propitiation. The text doesn't say that. The text uses hilasterion. Hilasmos is the verb um, for, um, uh, it's used to, to reconcile, to, to bring together. Um, and a hilasterion is a place, as you, the, the suffix indicates that it's a place of redemption. It's the, the focus is on the place. The place of redemption is this cross. The place of redemption is where God and his forbearance overlook sin. God on the cross has to overlook the most biggest sin ever that we as a species have committed. We murdered his son. In overlooking that one, everything else gets overlooked. In forgiving that, everything else is forgiven. God has forgiven us for murdering his son. Wow. So... Um, the Hilasterion here, interestingly enough, <clears throat> Bob Hamilton Kelly makes an argument in his book on um, sacred violence in Paul that, in fact, uh, what Paul's doing by saying God publicly displays him, remember the, the temple, the, the sacrifice is hidden behind curtains and veils and stuff. Here, this is a public display, right? Um, Hamilton Kelly argues that it's we humans here trying to propitiate God. We're, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's God propitiating us. We're the ones that need our anger assuaged. We're the ones that are wrathful. You know, we are by nature children of anger or wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. You know, so it's it's God propitiating us. What you're, what you're doing, Michael, I, I really appreciate it. One of the things that I've, uh, for a long time, even uh, you know, if 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 you're convinced that you're you've got to stick with the King James, you know, Bible, uh, terrible. Yes, but really. even if you are, if you read the book like you read most books, mm -hmm. instead of approaching it from the brainwashed opinion that you have about yourself that this book is so holy that you can't understand it you've got to you know you got to have a priest or a pastor or somebody explain it to you but if you read it like you read most books to understand you would find that the even even in a terrible translation like the king james you'll find that a lot of this is already explained and, and you'd understand it. For instance, earlier I, I mentioned Isaiah 53.10. 53.4 says it this way. New Living Translation, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. Yes, yes. A punishment for his sins. Yeah, we esteemed him stricken. By we God. esteemed him stricken, smicken of God. And and we look at that, and maybe even we memorized it in Sunday school, you know, so we could be the, you know, get the little gold star, you know. <laughs> and then we say, I'll, I'll know what that means. Uh, excuse me, go back to, you know, grade school English. <laughs> What do you think it means that we esteemed him stricken? It, right. In other words, he wasn't stricken by God. Right. We perceived it. That's right. That's right. Here's the thing. The, the Protestant has been told that God wrote the Bible. They sit down in front of a Bible. God speaks to them. When you take that away from the Protestant, they, they have nothing. Because they, 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 their relationship with Jesus is mediated through the authority of Scripture, an authority which is falsely misplaced. Yeah. And and when you take away the book, you take away everything. You could, for, for, for me, you could sit and show me a thousand contradictions in Scripture, and I would say that's the blessing. The blessing is the contradictions. They force us to think through things. They, they 
The Bible's a book that teaches us how to do theology, and it's also a book that teaches us how not to do theology. <laughs> and, and, and it's the Spirit that helps us discern that. Years ago, uh, my dad was teaching uh, uh, through Romans, and he uh, read the Scripture, Know you not that you're dead indeed to sin and alive to God? And a few verses later, Reckon yourself, therefore, to be dead to sin. And he's talking, and he said, it starts with you reckoning, reckoning yourself to be dead to sin. And <laughs> this one lady raises her hand, and Dad called her, and she says, well, I have a problem with that. You see, I know myself. So I'd have, I would be a liar if I consider myself dead to sin. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Let God be God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what the Bible says, but it can't mean that. You can't mean that, honey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mildred Freed ain't so. And you we're in trouble when we tell a person that their interpretation of the Bible is not what it's saying. Right. And and I I, I think that's um, it's an interesting perspective. It's like, well, I know what I know because the Bible says it. No, you know what you know because somebody said that's what the Bible means. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Some some pastor somewhere told you something, and you bought it. And and you know maybe for the season of your life you were in, it was worth buying. You know you may Good have needed point. that that word at that time of your life, but if you're not growing and you're not changing, if if you're still thinking the same thing uh, today that you thought five years ago, you you there's, there's no nothing new in your faith. Yeah, there was there was a meme that was going around for a while on Facebook that was really getting under my skin. Where um, it was it was targeting people who were in involved in deconstruction, but it was basically saying Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So reject anything that changes Christianity. And and I was like, wait a minute, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if if you're saying we don't need to change, you're saying we've arrived. And yeah, well, when I look at the landscape of Christianity, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, that that's false orthodoxy. That's this false orthodoxy. Protestants, you know, Protestants are so funny. They think they're orthodox. What they call orthodoxy has nothing to do like with the Nicene Creed or classic or orthodoxy. It's Protestant orthodoxy, and Protestant orthodoxy is nothing more than a cage that you get into, and they throw you in the river, and you drown. Oh, man. <laughs> That's Protestant orthodoxy. It is. It's a dead religion. It's legalistic. It's supersessionistic. It's Gnostic. It's Platonic. It's, it's uh, abusive, um, and it's an anti-gospel. Yeah, and, and like uh, like you guys were just saying, how y you have to be trained to read the Bible wrong to come to some of the conclusions we've been talking about that are amiss. Um, and, and I know in my own life that those things were planted there. And so you read into the Bible those things yes. of, of God's wrath, God's anger, um, yeah. uh, God killing his own son, um, you know, the sacrificial view. I, you can, that comes from, being trained to read it that way, and and right. so you're right when you when you get unwound because a friend of mine who's a, a missionary in, in Asia, he said that it's so much easier leading people to Jesus in Asia because they've never been all tangled up in the wrong perspectives, right. and he goes, right. you know, because it's so much harder to unlearn something than to learn <laughs> something right the first time. Yep. And uh, and he was going there. They just they mature so quickly compared to the West because mm -hmm. they don't have all that stuff to get untangled from. Right. That's I know one of the, one of the things that kind of kind of well, it set me free, but uh, kind of came as a surprise to me is I had been taught all my life, maybe you too, that 
it was sin that was nailed to the cross. And and then I realized, or actually I read, first of all, I've never read anywhere that sin was nailed to the tree. But I did read that the handwriting of requirements that was held against me, the law, was nailed to the cross. Yes. And and Paul says in, in one place, he says, you know, to the pure in heart, all things are pure. Everything's lawful. It may not be expedient in the moment or... Or, or even for my lifestyle, but it's still lawful. And if my heart is pure, everything's pure. And, and that's, for the person who wants to keep God as a righteous judge and Jesus as a sacrificial lamb and the propitiation and ultimate all going to stand before the, the, the throne and give an account and every idle word and people want to hold on to that don't throw those scriptures out they just say well that doesn't apply not to the disciple not to the person who really wants to live for God if you want to be a just a, a, a liberal and, and do everything well okay yeah, ultimately all things are legal. Okay, I, yeah, I get it. But you know, if you really want to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow the Lord and be a disciple and be as joyful as I am, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you would really toe the line, you know, the straight and the narrow. And I'm like, oh my God. If you want to, if, if you want to be into the Bible, if that's what you want to be into, then pick the thing up and read it. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're at it, learn the original languages. Well, yeah, that too. I, I wish everybody at home could have had a visual, because when Jim said that, I thought Michael was going to do a spit take. He was taking a drink <laughs> right then, and, and all of a sudden he like stopped, and he almost spit it out. That was too good. <laughs> You know, um, Jim, what you were saying reminded me of something that I, um, I, I went to uh, Steve Crosby's uh, seminar on Galatians. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that came out of that that was just incredible was was he was talking about how in Paul makes the point somehow I it's one of those things again through through my all my training I couldn't see it um that how Paul makes the point that it was the law that killed Jesus and Paul mm -hmm. Paul is making the point in Galatians going that it was it was following the letter of the law that made them say we have to kill Jesus yes I was never taught that in Sunday school. And, and, and it makes sense then all of a sudden why Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law. Why? Because the law leads to you killing people who don't deserve to be killed. And so Jesus is fulfilling the law. He, he shows where the law will take you. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting on another, another whole <laughs> subject. Uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will until all things be fulfilled. And I remember sitting down with a couple one time and I said, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus fulfill the law? And they said, well, yeah, Jesus did. I said, well, it only takes Jesus to fulfill the law for him to remove the law. Oh, yeah, nice. You get what I'm saying, though? I, oh, man, I do. Yeah. That was brilliant. Yeah. Did, did, did they croak? <laughs> <laughs> well, they did have to take a time to think about it for a while. <laughs> I, I think we need a timeout, Pastor. Our mind has just been blown. Maybe they needed to run back to their pastor to say, how do I answer Jim? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. <clears throat> the gospel as a, as a, as a complete message Um has everything to say to every single doctrine out there that any Christian believes. Here's the, the reality. Classic orthodoxy, the doctrine of the Trinity, the divinity and humanity of Christ, you know, the death of Christ is salvific, Christ is raised from the dead, all these great doctrines 
are, are so much more than doctrines. They are living, breathing, how do I want to say that there, there are hermeneutic, there are, there are the lenses, they are the, that which animates all of our thinking and, and worship together. The Protestants' problem is that each of these doctrines has been, has, has had some sort of crippling disease, and so it looks like it's, each doctrine is like rheumatoid arthritis. It can't grasp anything, you know. Even though it's trying, um, it's diseased. And it, the, I mean, my task for 40 years has been to rethink this whole Protestant project and try and rethink it non-sacrificially. You know, um, and I, I'm basically alone in this, as far as I know, as a Protestant doing this. I mean, there are some others doing some good work, but not trying to think through the entire, what it means to be a Protestant, and what Protestant doctrine then looks like. And, and so, it's, it's hard. But the reality is, the gospel liberates on every front, including the doggone intellectual trap that the church has put Christians into. You gotta believe what we say, or you're burning hell. And if you don't believe what we say, well, that's the slippery slope to liberalism, and you'll burn in hell, and and all the nonsense that they do. And I agree with Jim. That's just gotta go. Well, you know, to every Bible believing Christian, there are thirty nine thousand other heretics out there. Well, <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you know. Every denomination except mine is a heretic, you know. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Michael, you said something, and and I want to pick up on that for a second. When I when I said there, uh, read the book. You you said and and learn the original languages. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned the Septuagint. Yeah. How would a person go about? Uh, you know, you know the old saying it's all greek to me you yeah. know but how would a person go about beginning to learn how to read um the bible or read scripture in the original languages or even just to pick up the septuagint and and see how radically different it is from the bible that most of us have on our bookshelf I'm, I'm in print and everywhere else is saying, if you're not willing to invest a decade in a language, don't bother learning it. I, I don't okay. go with these uh, little uh, fake little Greek courses that teach a student how to recognize letters in a word, or, or nor do I deal with the etymological fallacy of the root meaning of words. All the nonsense that's taught in churches. So first of all, if you're not willing to spend a decade mastering it, don't bother learning it. Don't bother. Don't waste your time. Well, when I first started learning it, we were told to spend 10 minutes a day, three times a day in our Greek Testament. I've been doing that for 50 years. 10 minutes a day, three times a day. Just I carry a Greek Testament with me. I have chunks of it memorized. I'm constantly comparing syntax and the way writers write things and vocabulary. And But the thing is, is that was kind of meant tongue-in-cheek because the fact is you don't need Greek or Hebrew to read New Testament or, or to read the Bible non-sacrificially. You don't need them. Mm -hmm. They're very beneficial. They can help you see things you, you couldn't see otherwise, you know, but but really by the leading of the Spirit, you could come to a natural non-sacrificial reading of Scripture. You really could. And I, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with my students now, show them you don't have to learn church history, Greek, Hebrew. You don't have to, you don't have, to have anything. You don't have to know any of that. The, there's this, these few basics that once you see where the text is moving, then all other texts can be brought into play and in, in, in dialogue. I think that, that that's, um, that's a great answer. Because what we're trying to do here on this podcast is if we can just adjust a, a, a way or the way that a person approaches it, yes. you say non-sacrificially. I, I agree with that. There are so many things that we have been indoctrinated, brainwashed into seeing it a certain way. Yes. That if we would just change our paradigm a slight bit, doesn't take much. 
all of a sudden, Scripture means a whole lot different than the 50 times we've read it before. Oh, Scripture comes alive. Yes, when you learn to read exactly. it sacrificially. It comes alive. And, and it drastically changes, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, it drastically changes the view of our Father, which is an extremely freeing thing. Oh, oh yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and I have to say, I'm really relieved to hear um, we can get that without having to learn the original languages, because I, I, I barely passed Spanish. It was my sister's fluent. She's the one who got me through Spanish. So all my life, I have relied on people who could actually speak the or read the languages to help me get through things. So that's why I've connected with you, Michael, <laughs> because I've, I've never been good at learning other languages. So it's, it's always been a struggle for me. So, oh, Lauren, I, I took first year of Spanish, <laughs> and I, I did pretty good with it. I mean, you know, hola and whatever. And I checked into second year of Spanish, and uh, I, I was swimming. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, but the funny thing about it is I didn't realize it was um, uh, photo day for the yearbook. And... and uh, there's this girl in Spanish class that I really like, so I went to the Spanish club that afternoon and kind of following her like a little puppy dog, you know, and they came and they took pictures and stuff. Well, her, I, the teacher, and one other kid was there, and they said, okay, well, who's the president of the Spanish club? Somebody all looked at me and pointed as he is. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm the president of the Spanish club. <laughs> For me, that's the stuff nightmares are made of. That, exactly. would, that would be an absolute nightmare for me. <laughs> I know exactly. Spanish. Uno, dos, tres. Taco and churro, burrito. That's my Spanish. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> I saw an interesting uh, thing on Facebook. Maybe maybe you guys saw it too, but it was a um, uh, pretty ornate cross, and on the on the arm of the cross was the Lord laying down. The upright, he had his hand stretched out, holding the Father's hand, and going down the 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 foot of the cross was his arm reaching out, holding man's hand. And I, I looked at that and I said, that's a pretty good piece of, I'd like to find that artwork and put it on my wall. <laughs> because I think that that's about as close a representation as uh, what we talked about last week, that um, the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's yeah, awesome. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, we don't well, we don't have we and, and we we need all new we'll we'll talk about this someday we need new music in the church oh my gosh not, yes this is my boyfriend barf but oh my gosh music that that captures the, the the christological character of 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 this wonderful gospel that we've been given yes you're, you're speaking my language because getting out of that non-sacrificial view and I, I tend to sing in my car on the way to work and oh, yeah. and I, I and i have a hard time finding songs to sing there's because nothing, there's nothing else to yeah, sing sacrificial stuff i'll start singing some song that that i used to always like oh, and yeah. then all of a sudden i'm like this is totally wrong oh, me too. Oh, no. <laughs> no, totally. I'll, go, I'll go back i'll start singing archangel or kemper crab or something you know but i love that music <laughs> i love that stuff but it's like the theology doesn't know the lord is a warrior yeah okay i know what I can exactly <laughs> right right and i was singing some other song and it was basic it was something like you know it had a line about the the uh, uh, you know rain down your spirit or something i'm like wait what you know, he's he's in us. You know, he's here. God is in all of, all of That's that, all I know. <laughs> all that renewal, restoration period of time where God, you come down. Yeah. You know, rain down, visit yeah. us, show up. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the Lord's sitting there in the back of the church, going, "You idiot! I'm right here." Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, and, I, I do have a hope, though, uh, what you're saying, Michael, 
being, having been in the church all my life, music has always come in waves, and it, and it all seems to be centered around either the current theology or the current experience. Yeah. If if the church is coming into a and when I say the church, I'm not talking about the the building on the corner. I'm talking about the church. Right. If we're coming into a more relational place with with the Father, a, a more of a, a understanding of of what it is to be in Christ yes. and to have Christ in us, then I have hope that the songs that we're going to write, the songs we'll be singing will be much uh, more theologically correct. You, you know who's a beautiful hymn writer that I thought was able to do that was uh, the Wesleys. Um, and, mm, and it exactly. that I should gain an interest mm -hmm. in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, him, death pursued? You know, amazing love. That that's that's text you can work with. That's wow. text you can meditate on it, and that's text you can fructify in your heart. You know, that's yeah. great text. And then and then we get you know the revivalist stuff from Fanny Crosby, and it's me and Jesus walking in the garden alone, and that morphs into the Hill song. Jesus is my boyfriend. Let's have sex. You know. <laughs> oh, I saw some weird stuff in groups, dudes, on this. I'm not kidding. These charismatics, they, they, they get out there and they can make you blush. There's there's some weird stuff out there. Well, watching, yeah. um, I, I just recently watched it. There's a documentary series on Hillsong on Netflix right now. And after watching that, it made me just pretty repulsed being comfortable singing the songs that they've put out just knowing that they're they're test marketed for their sales using using the audience and things like that it was just like yuck consumerism to the max yeah you know picking chords that are in the top pop songs and stuff to make mm -hmm. sure they oh, yeah. sell and you know all oh, that yeah. kind of stuff well i was raised um in a pentecostal church in my uh teen years I, I sing in a uh, gospel quartet, and we traveled around, you know, Oregon, California, whatever. And <laughs> so, some years back, when the kids were little, they're in their forties now. But when they were little, I discovered Bill Gaither radio, and so I'd turn on Bill Gaither music, and and I'd be sitting there, and I'd I'd just be so n nostalgic, you know. I could sing the bass lines for everything, you know. Uh, and here recently, I kind of discovered it again, and I turned it on, and I was, oh my god, that is some bad theology there. <laughs> 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 well, and then it's interesting too, just studying the history too, because so many of the songs, um, like you get songs from like the period right after World War One, where that mentality in the church was "get me out of here," and so you get songs oh, like yeah. "I'll fly away" and the whole mentality oh, of "let's yeah, just yeah. get out of here." That all comes from after World War One, where people were just um, pretty had a pretty negative worldview at that time, you know, and 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 were just done with everything. So it, you get that all bleeding in into the music as well. Most most of those gospel songs are about how terrible it is down here and how wonderful it's going to be, you know, on the other side, you know? If if you're lucky enough to get the ticket through the Purdue Gates. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> now that doesn't always go for all of you. <laughs> I don't want you to let them liberals slip on you into thinking. Uh, now be careful. <laughs> boy, you will burn. I, I know. I, I, I shouldn't go there. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Uh, I went there. Burn them all. Burn them all. That's right. Let God sort it out. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so well, so we burn them all, but then we let him sort it out. We'll yeah. sort them out. <laughs> well, that's that's what they used to say in the in the trenches when they were firing away. Fire away and let God sort them out. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Well, this has been well, a good conversation, you guys. Oh, good. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I don't know what you'll do with it. <laughs> no, I think this is good. I, I'd like to, we need to do one on, on worship and worship music and all that kind of stuff. Because um, this, I, I, we could talk a lot more on this topic. Um, Boy, you really do want to get me kicked out of the church, don't you? <laughs> that's that's my goal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm already out, so I'm happy to make all the comments that, that I can make. Right. There's, I've been kicked out of every church I've ever been in. Every pastor I've tried to make friends with, they don't want to do it. They're so intimidated. They're so weak. Pastors are so weak. Scared I, little egotistical kingdom builders. I've seen that many times. Miserable little yeah, but you're threatening their pocketbook. Yeah, I know. That's why it's right. Oh my god. I have I have a friend of mine here in town and he's told me privately. He said, "Jim, I would love to kind of follow you, but you got to understand, you've always been bivocational. You've always had, you know, something you can fall back on." All I have is the church, and if I step away from it, uh, how am I going to support my fi- my family? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, wow. you uh, you are not free, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it, it it makes me realize how all those years where I was trying to push to get into full time ministry, what a blessing it was to never get it. <laughs> Well, the only reason I wished I would have gotten into full-time ministry is because uh, I'm an old man now, and it would be nice to rest on my butt and uh, collect unemployment. Or, I mean, uh, retirement. <laughs> well, <laughs> how did you find it so the heart the mouth speaks? <laughs> he, he, he knows he would have ended up unemployed. <laughs> Maybe maybe that wasn't a Freudian slip. That's what I mean. (laughs) No, but Michael, how you were saying that the thing of the you know, pastors being so intimidated and everything, I've 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 been often saying to Lily and Michaela is that it's kinda like, you know, you hear about women talking about the glass ceiling, you know, regarding pay. I've seen that in churches that there's a glass ceiling that you're not allowed to outgrow the pastor. If you know more or outgrow, you better keep it quiet. You better not show it. Because oh, yeah. most of them will be intimidated. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. I've, I've got stories that, that uh, even to the last church that I left, uh, where the, the pastors, you know, they go to seminary. And this, this last one, this guy was working on a D-min, you know, and it was supposed to, like, save the world. Every, of course, every, every student mm. thinks they're going to save the world. Uh but I'm going to try to have a conversation with this guy about his sermons. He wouldn't have it. He wouldn't, you know. And finally, I, I got told, quit critiquing my sermons. I said, but they need criticism. Is you need help. You need help. You know. <laughs> and and you know what's crazy about that? I, I got to talk as a teacher here for a second by by profession, high school teacher. Um, I find that amazing because you go into a public school. We have appraisers who are in charge of coming into our classroom four times a year to observe us and take notes and say what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And then we have a formal observation where they come in for the entire 45 minutes and critique everything we do and Mm -hmm. and say how we do and what we're doing right, what we need to improve on and everything. And it's weird how that's the profession of teaching and yet pastors say they are teachers. Where's the critique? Where's the where's the people who have that place in their lives of saying, here's where you need to improve. Here's where, even just on a practical level, here's how you can convey that better. Here's how you can get that truth across better. Well, the absurdity is, think about this. I mean, really, just think about this for a second. You want to go be a pastor today. Let's say you want to take the high road. You go to a seminary. You're only required two church history classes. For 2,000 years of church history, two church history classes. Some seminaries still require you take a little mini Greek thing that you'll forget in three months, but at least you took it. Um, You take a New Testament course, an Old Testament course. You take uh, Christian education courses. You take some pastoral courses. 
Everything else after that is like macrame 101, you know, spirituality and candles. Uh, just it just how to run a youth group. I, you know, I, it just it's all management oriented. Yeah. And so there's no there's no shaping of the mind in seminary anymore. There is no no or shaping of the soul and the spirit together with the mind. There's no habitus, that's the Latin term that gets created in students. And so the seminary experience, students, they, they learn all this stuff they never learned in Sunday school in their churches. And then they, they go to seminary and they learn all this highfalutin stuff. And they're going to go out and change the church because they got all this high. They've read their Walter Brueggemann and their Jürgen Moltmann and this. They're going to go change them. And they don't realize, you know, being a pastor, spending your life caring about people on their spiritual journeys, you know, helping them learn to reframe those journeys in light of the gospel of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, that is a lifelong task, and it's not about just changing people's minds. It's about being with them so that lives are changed together, our lives are changed together, mm. you know? It's not the top-down dumping knowledge stuff. I mean, that shit gets you, stuff gets you nowhere. Sorry, kids, ignore me. <laughs> I'll, I'll go put a bar of soap in my mouth when I'm done. <laughs> Funny, that bar of soap tasted an awful lot like a cranberry. <laughs> there's, there's nobody drinking during this podcast. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's it, it's funny, funny what you were saying about seminary because i always forget somebody even asked me recently they're like have you had any bible college training and i was like no and lily was like what are you talking about you went to, through that whole youth ministry training program i was like oh yeah i just don't count it as anything because it was pretty much all junk because it was yeah. like i think in that whole youth ministry training program it was like a a two-year program <laughs> and out of the whole thing i think uh there were two classes that were useful, which both had to do with crisis counseling, which, you know, was real world stuff on, on how to handle, help people who are suicidal, depressed, you know, things like that. E everything else was, like you said, Michael, it was all management, how to manage youth group, how to grow your youth group, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And then, and, yeah, and then you got the anti-intellectual charismatic assemblies of God types. There's no seminary because they got the Holy Ghost. I remember being in a conversation with an assemblies of God pastor once, and um, we were going at it a bit. And I asked him, you know, can, can you exegete this text for me? He says, I don't know what that means. I said, I just, just need you to unpack this this text for me and, and using logic and stuff. He says, I got the Holy Spirit. I said, yeah, but your Holy Spirit's stupid. Can you just please exegete this text? You know, and he, he just worked out. He's just like, because... God, Michael, that uh, that's close to the unpardonable sin. <laughs> you know, it's sad that I have to admit I I used to be one of them. I was I was super anti anti intellectual, oh, yeah. um, but but I I, uh, I I won't open that up because that opens up a whole nother can of worms. I saw the light, boys. I saw <laughs> yes. the light. Yep. Well, guys, this has been really good. Um, okay. and, uh, I, I love the uh, avenues we've gone down. I think the listeners are going to have a lot of fun with this one. Um, but anyway, we um, this has been a great conversation, and we will catch you all next week. Amen. That sounds good. 